Pete, as you well know, fashion does not happen in a vacuum. It's reflecting the world around it. And I think our responsibility as editors and journalists is to reflect that culture. You go back and look at pictures from when we were growing up. You, you look at a fashion image and you can instantly remember, you know, what the movies were that people were talking about, what music they were listening to, what was happening from a political perspective. It's full of information, what people are wearing and how they want to present themselves to the world. everybody. Welcome to another episode of the NordiPod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. To kick off the new year, we thought it'd be fun to take a little stroll down memory lane and look back on some of our favorite NordiPod moments from 2023. We've had a lot of fun making this thing, and I've really enjoyed chatting with all the fascinating people that have agreed to come on the show. Fashion icons like Domenico De Sole, Anna Wintour, and Will Welch. Incredible fashion designers like Simone Rocha and Erdem. Successful brand partners like Gucci Westman and David Neville of Westman Atelier. Casper Copetti of On Running Shoes. Anastasia Sore of Anastasia Beverly Hills. And Ben Gorm of Byredo. I've also had the great pleasure of chatting with a slew of really amazing athletes and entertainers like former NFL wide receiver for the Seattle Seahawks, Doug Baldwin, former NBA All-Star of the Chicago Bulls, Bob Love, Grammy award-winning hip-hop artist Macklemore, and TV and film star Joel McHale. Looking inward, I've also really enjoyed chatting with some of our employees and learning about how they use Nordstrom as a platform to build really impressive careers for themselves. For example, three of our very best salespeople, Jesse James Barnhold, Gregory Clark, and Jeffrey Ola. And this year has also taken us out of the studio and into some really interesting places, like our distribution and fulfillment centers, and to the very end of our merchandise food chain, to our last chance stores. But some of my absolute favorite moments on the show are when I've had the chance to chat with some of our loyal customers. We've shared several really great customer experiences on the NordiPod and even a bit of negative feedback too. But good or bad, there's always something to learn. So overall, it's been a really fun year and I'm really proud of what we've been able to put together. I hope you enjoyed this special look back at the NordiPod in 2023. You guys have a zillion stories about Nordstrom customer service. My story is this. It's 730 in 2016 in the evening. I'm eating dinner and there's a ring at my doorbell and there's Blake with my alterations bringing them on the way home. He goes, hey, I just thought I'd pick these up for you on, on the way home. And so that just embodies what all of you do every single day. If When I see that, I want to just encourage people to keep doing it. High five them, send them a hand. No, do it, do it, do it. Pete, everywhere I go, 
this, the Nordstrom service level is just at an all-time high. It can be a rack and palm desert. It can be the New York flagship store. It doesn't matter where it's at. And nobody knows who I am when I go into the stores. They do when I leave because I always call the store manager up to introduce myself. But I always walk around the store first. I've gotten thrown out of more back rooms with probably than any board member around. Do you go uh, in the back rooms uninvited? You start walking yeah, back? Yeah, but then I get <laughs> I get caught and I just say, okay, here's my employee number. I'm a board member. And uh, uh, But it, it's it's real. It's it. You can touch it. You you can feel it. You can see it, not just here in Seattle, but in every store, every Nordstrom store that I go into. There was an experience on the sales floor that really brought it all home for me. We were in the middle of a sale and a lady walks in and I could just tell she was totally flustered. I could look at her and tell. And I walk up to her, say hello to her, and she's like, it's just too busy. Was it crazy? We were in the middle of a sale. It yeah. was crazy. <laughs> okay. And so I, I sit her down. We start working and, and I'm, you know, helping her out. Her husband comes up 45 minutes into it and she says, I found some shoes. And he's like, you did? Play that forward a couple weeks. It all goes well. We get her shoes. She gets boots. She gets all casual dress and boots. She gets everything. We finish this off and I get a note a couple weeks later from her husband it turns out he is an author. A few weeks later, he comes in, you know, like with a camera taking pictures of me on the sales floor. Later, he writes a note to Eric and sends a book. Um, I'm in the service industry. I do this for a living. And they called me out. You talk about random acts and how giving service can take us forward. We will do well when we make people feel good and look their best. What does it take in order to do that? I have a 20-year-old daughter with cerebral palsy. Her name is Anna, and she's sitting here with me right now. And we do um, as much shopping as we can at Nordstrom. And we just really love how Anna is treated there. I mean, this New Year's Day, we ventured over to the children's shoes because Anna has a very small foot. Okay. She only has a size three. Oh, okay. She's still yeah, she's still in a kid size, which is a little frustrating for a 20-year-old to have a kid size foot because you don't always get the shoes that you want. But we had the most lovely, I'm going to find her name, the most lovely lady who was so accommodating to Anna. Her name was Rebecca. Rebecca took the time to really try to understand in just those few minutes how Anna communicates. She communicates through, as you can hear, vocalizations and through eye blinks. And Rebecca would bring shoes to Anna and see what her response was. And she would say to me, I don't think she likes those. Or <laughs> Anna, how about these? And we ended up with the most adorable Nike shoes that she loves wearing and that you know, the thing is with clothing and when you have a disability and when you have something that makes you look different, fashion can equalize that in a way right. and, and give her something for people to talk to her about. And that's what these shoes, <laughs> which I would have never chosen. And she has gotten so many compliments on those shoes that Rebecca helped her find. And she loved it. She lit up to have somebody right to have somebody you know show that kind of interest in her and it was yeah. really really a beautiful moment all right 
right, so if this doesn't restore your faith in humanity, I don't know what will. I was here at Nordstrom Rack. I was in the dressing room and a large amount of money, a lot of money, I don't normally have this much cash, fell out in the dressing room. I called and they have it. Hey, my name is Austin. I left some money in the dressing room and somebody turned it in. I just called and it okay. said it was like in the safe. Gotcha. Okay, let me run back there and grab it. You spoke to Jen earlier. Yes, yes. I cannot thank y'all enough. Seriously. Yeah, Bo in the men's fitting room brought it up front. He said, hey, somebody's going to be looking for this. I, I, you guys are good people. I oh, can't thank you enough. We try to Austin Austin Burks. Yes, yes. I cannot thank you enough. Seriously. Seriously. Please thank them. You got Unbelievable. It. You guys are awesome. Nordstrom Drack in Scottsdale. I have no words. I'm just so grateful. Appreciate y'all. How our service culture has evolved and developed is largely based on actual things that have happened and stories. And we amplify those to help illustrate what good looks like. So we've got Jeffrey Ola here and we got Gregory Clark and we have Jesse James. These three of our absolute best shoe sellers in our company. Can each of you guys share like your favorite story with us, your Nordstrom story? I met a customer who I've been working with for the last um, five years. Just last year, she bought a home and she came over to tell me about the new beautiful home that she built and she immediately started crying. And I was like, oh, this got very awkward. <laughs> so I'm like, what's going on? She then decided to pour her heart out and tell me about her recent divorce and everything that was happening and how she used my Instagram page as an escape from reality. And then it all kind of started making sense because she would come in for an appointment and will stay an hour, two hours after the appointment, just sitting around, enjoying company, talking, watching me, taking care of other customers. It gave me a different perspective on why I do what I do. And she said, thank you so much for staying consistent with it because every day me going onto your page was to take me away from all of that stuff. So that really meant a lot to me. That's great. Hey Clark, how about you? What's your favorite story? Uh, one of my favorite stories is I had a, a customer come in and give me a, a major issue that her and her husband were experiencing where he was a very difficult fit. Um, so they always had problems finding the correct shoe for him. And, and most times they would go places and they just wouldn't be successful. So I measured uh, his foot and noticed that he had been wearing a 13. He should have been wearing a 14. So I brought out a few shoes. Uh, one of them was actually a 13, but it ran a little large. And that was the one that he wanted to go with. But I was insistent to tell him and his wife, like, it, it'll be comfortable now. But later on, once you've been in it all day, it, it just won't work. I'll do my best to try to find it. And as I went through uh, people in our company to try to help me get the size, they were just saying that, unfortunately, at this time, we didn't buy that size. Uh, so I went to the brand that actually carried it. I purchased the shoe myself, and then I sent it to the customer's home. As a thank you, she referred one of her friends to me in January, early of the start this year. Uh, this customer wanted to do a whole wardrobing over it and has become the number one customer for New York off of a problem I solved with her friend. Yeah, is, is this the... Is this <laughs> I think I know the story. Is this when I got sent that picture of a receipt that was about that long? It was a little longer, but... Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Tell us people what, what that sale added up to. Uh, a little over 90,000. <laughs> That's a good day right there. Okay. It's a good month. <laughs> so Jesse, how, how about you? What's your favorite story? Mine actually hits home because about two months ago uh, at school, I have five-year-old twins. They asked, uh, you know, my kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And my daughter sell a ballerina, which totally fine. She wants to be a ballerina. That's awesome. And my son said a shoe seller. And that just means that I love my job so much that I'm bringing it home that he sees it in such a positive light that he wants to be like dad. And that just makes me happy. Next, we're going to share a few examples from some of the behind the scenes places like our fulfillment and distribution centers and the very end of our merchandise food chain, our last chance stores. Wow, we got a lot of merchandise. I'm just following you. I'm not, I'm not, I hope you're taking us somewhere. Is this the return spot? Returns inspection, yes. Yeah, Return, returns is. inspection is something we should delve into. They probably have some stories. Oh, I think they, they probably do. They do, yep. So one of the things I'm really interested in knowing about, because I know it's an unusual part of our whole system, is the whole returns processing. Yeah. You guys have to figure out what it is. Yep. Is it resellable? So what, can you tell me what you do? That, tell me about exactly that. That's exactly what we have to do. We have to enter it in over in customer returns and then over here in returns inspection, we actually have to look at every piece inside and out, check for good, bad stains. I, I smell the garment myself, honestly. You, um, so you take it out of the box and you smell it? Yes. Like smell if there's if body it's got odor, right? Body like, odor or perfume. Um, if it has perfume or whatnot, we send it to Last Chance where they can um, sell it for at a high discount. They yeah, a want, high discount. They don't want their stuff to smell <laughs> like perfume. You know what I think is funny is I never will understand this. We get so many shoe boxes back and there's just knives in it. What do you mean knives? Like it's usually a steak knife. And <laughs> No, wait, did someone buy the steak knife from us or was it just they thought they returned the shoes and they didn't realize that there weren't shoes in there? No, I think they use the knife to open the box that they receive their shoes in and then somehow it always ends up back in the shoe box. So this knives. is not this just didn't happen once. No, it happens all the time. It, like <laughs> all the time. They literally have a bucket, what they call sharps containers for the knives, just to put it in there because there's so many knives returned. Do we ever say we know who this customer is gonna send them? their knife back? <laughs> we usually don't send the knives back, no. <laughs> I do want to say the return policy saddens me. Talk about what, what about the taking everything back. So you think we take back too many Too returns. much being in returns. It is horrible. So what do you think we should do about that? Well. Like, explicitly, these are the terms? Or what do you mean? Like, what should we do? We've put it out there that X, Y, and Z cannot be returned, and they've returned them. Yeah. Things that require batteries. Pardon me? Oh, I think I know what you're talking about now. <laughs> Well, I mean, so are you telling me like, okay, That's I'm so I'm so glad I have Pete Nordstrom here because what I want to tell him is that you need, you need to change Stop your return policy. taking vibrators back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find that that return thing ever like offends people's sensibilities at work here like I can't believe we're taking this back or do you feel like they're yes. aligned on the mission like why do we do this why do we take these returns well they see a lot of interesting stuff in fact I was just downstairs <laughs> yes, do. and uh, uh, the stories that were told to me were just unbelievable about uh, what was being returned 
Uh, we had some moldy potatoes that were returned. Uh, we had uh, some <laughs> pop tarts that were returned. That that's, those have got to be accidents, or like so they shipped like their shoes back or something, and then somehow there was moldy potatoes in there. Or do you think they're intentionally sending us pop tarts? Un- unfortunately, sometimes it's you know intentional, but. You know, sometimes they're, they're accidents and, you know, we try to investigate those and figure out, you know, what in the world happened where we're getting a Pop-Tart back in a box um, and, you know, follow up with those customers appropriately. <laughs> okay, so give me another example of like some return things that are just kind of unusual or strange. Yeah, so the most interesting one that I've heard of uh, was actually today down there on the floor. They just opened up a box and had theirs used kitty litter in the box. That was it. Just yes, and so it was like in a Prada, it was in a Prada box and you open it up and there's actual kitty litter in there that's been yeah. You know, my cynicism immediately says there's <laughs> something nefarious happening here, but is it is it possible that it was just like some kind of honest weird mistake that they sent us the used I mean, kitty litter? I guess it's possible, but a lot of stars have to align for that to happen, you know? <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully we can keep focused on not being too cynical about yeah. this because there might be some yeah. explainable reason, who knows? Yeah. But uh, I appreciate you giving me new stories to tell. You got it. If you were at a dinner party or something and someone goes, what do you do? And I'm at Nordstrom Last Chance and they go, what is that? What do you tell them about what Last Chance actually is? You know, to, to back up the full ecosystem of our product and the life cycle uh, and its journey from selling it at Nordstrom, uh, items that then are marked down and move on to the rack, anything that can't be sold or gets damaged needs to go somewhere. I mean, what percentage off the original price is something when it gets to last chance generally? It's going to blend anywhere in the 80 to 85 when we first put it off. That's a uh, pretty good floor. deal. And we also will offer additional discounts on those prices e- even further to when we know our items have, have sat there for a while. So there's times that you're buying a what was originally a $100 item for $3. The most expensive one time was a couture dress was $20,000 and we sold it for $2,500. But that's the most expensive one time. Yeah. Like what's the lowest? Like 50 cents or something? The cheapest thing in our store right now is kid socks is 49 cents. See, now there you go. You never know what you're going to find at the last chance store from $2,500 couture dress to a kid sock for 49 cents. That's right. So we're here today at last chance in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, And we're standing here in general processing right now. You can hear some carts walking behind us, rolling behind us, product moving left and right. Okay, so we're standing here with Leah, our general processing manager. So we have some fun facts to ask. Um, What's the most random item you've ever seen come through here? Uh, We once got in a John Deere tractor carburetor. John Deere tractor carburetor. Hang on, we gotta stop right there for a second. Tractor parts? Yeah. Did we actually sell it? Yes, we sold it. Some of the most unique things we've seen, we've seen a canoe, We've seen. What do you mean? We sold a canoe? A canoe came into our, our Why store. Why were we carrying a canoe? You know, I don't know. We we, we don't always get uh, to chase <laughs> I, I should down look into that. From. Okay. We uh, sold a canoe. What else? We've seen uh, a case of ramen, full size arcade game. I think we had a direct TV box. We've had a boat <laughs> canopy. Uh, the team, you know, it keeps them lighter on their feet. If you work there, that's part of the fun of it, is you're going to see some pretty wild stuff. 
What is the craziest thing that you've seen? It just caught you off guard. Wait, what? what is this? Why are we selling this? Yeah, Power Wheels. Power <laughs> Wheels. Yeah, the toy Power Wheels come in here and it kind of threw me off guard. We've gotten in some like wooden skis, which we did wind up selling. We got in some like wooden crossbows, which we did not sell. Do we not sell those for safety reasons or yes. because no one would buy them? No, for safety purposes. Yeah. Electric scooter or the bikes. <laughs> the bike you were riding yesterday or the day before. That was a scooter I rode. We, we had a scooter being ridden in the stock room. The kids are scooter. Our, our legal and risk team will love hearing that. <laughs>
been here in one role or another ever since. All right. So, Anna, I know the sense of responsibility and affinity to you, you feel for emerging designers and trying to nurture that and give them a platform to be seen and known um, some of these amazing creative people. At the same time, while you clearly understand the power of those big houses and the established designers, yeah. can you talk a little bit how you balance your time? You know, sometimes out of, of tragedy comes something very positive and after... 9-11, which uh, occurred right at the very beginning of New York Fashion Week, Vogue decided that they would support the next generation of young American designers who you know, were not able to show for obvious reasons and had lost deposits, lost all that they had and were really... I think really, really struggling. And the community came together, uh, Carolina Herrera, Ralph, Tommy, Donna, everybody was so supportive. And I think, you know, for all of us, you know, many of the stores helped us uh, as well. I think it's so important that we come together as community to support and mentor and to help as much as we can the next generation. I think that's part of our responsibilities in the jobs that we have. I know it's how you feel just as much and you, I know you've done so much yourself. I, I think it's so important. Okay, here we are with our 2,000 closest friends having a little intimate That's chat. I cannot good. see them, but they look great. Yeah. You know, if I had to have come up with a list at the beginning of who I could be like on the dream list at the top of the list, Domenico would be right at the top of it. So anyway, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me here. Uh, first thing is getting some idea about your background to create some context, because here you are, even described by your own people as the godfather of the designer and luxury business. You know, how did you come to be that? I mean, you, you, you know, guy from Italy, and so I'll let you kind of take that story about how uh, it came to I, be that was, you got in this business. Yeah, I was thinking about the other day, and uh, I really believe there's one chance in 20 billion. Uh, my family is from a small town in the worst part of Italy. I hope I'm not offending anybody, called Calabria. I had a scholarship to come to the United States, and I had the good fortune to go to Harvard Law School. I was a lawyer. I met under very unique set of circumstances at some point, a member of the Gucci family. I became the lawyer of one of the members of the family, Rodolfo Gucci. The, the family was fighting over the ownership of the company and I'll divide up the shares amongst the members of the family. Then is and I became the CEO of Gucci America because Aldo Gucci, one of the members of the family, the real genius that created this immense company with a great name, uh, went to jail for tax fraud. So I ran Gucci America. I had no idea about running a company, but I said, well, I'll see what I can do about it. Then the son of uh, uh, my client, Maurizio Gucci, became the chairman and CEO of the Gucci Worldwide. And much to my chagrin, he turned out to be a terrible business person and ran the company to the ground. So in uh, at the beginning of the 90s, in 1993, uh, the owners of the company, the body mouth, was a called Investcorp, a private equity company called Investcorp, they called me up and said, how's your Italian? I said, okay, so can you move to Italy? This is a disaster. We don't know what to do with this company. So I arrived there and I learned the greatest lesson in life that is much better to be lucky than be smart because this young designer that Maurizio wanted to fire, called Tom Ford, and I didn't fire him. I said, well, why, why do we want to fire him? I was running Gucci America, and then at some point I started 
moved to Italy, turned the company around pretty quickly. And uh, so they asked me, who do you want as a creative director? And uh, at that point, there were only two possible people left because the company really, really running out of money. And I made the right decision in hiring Tom. I never forget, I drove up from Florence, I went to Milan, Tom was a kid in early 30s, and I said, Tom, I think we can, this is a great company. I said, it's an immense name recognition. You design, I run the company. The only thing I ask you, don't be late to a collection. Otherwise, I will start designing and it will be a total catastrophe. And we made a deal and nine and a half years later, we sold the company for $10.5 billion. So tell me, what, what are you most proud of? that you've accomplished in your career? In business, I'm very proud of my friendship with Tom Ford. I think I was blessed to probably deal with the greatest creative person in the last, for sure, 50 years. And, you know, it done something really, in a way, they will last. I, I think the way we work together and blended, as you say, art and commerce, it's been a very, very exciting thing. And, and most important, we trained a lot of great people. You know, I saw my old, People, you know, to give you an example, one of the person who worked for us, Nicolas Jusquier now is the creative director of Louis Vuitton. You know, there are a lot of people in the industry that work with us. So there are a lot of great, great people that work with us that have made them successful as well. You know, and at the end, my legacy is going to be, our legacy is going to be what up Gucci and Tom Ford. So I've done my part. Today, we have the founders of Westman Ateliers. We have Gucci Westman and David Neville here. You guys, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. You You don't get snow that often in Seattle. I know, we were so excited. A little bit of snow this morning is exciting. (laughs) Gucci, why don't you you tell your story then? Okay, Um, I'll... I'll, Give us a little chronological I'll give you a little play-by-play. So, you know, I grew up in Sweden. My dad is Swedish. And I actually was appointed the makeup artist on the school bus going to school when I was younger. And because it was a long <laughs> bus ride, I wasn't allowed that to wear makeup really myself. Long bus ride. It was in the countryside in Sweden, all the way two hours we had to go oh, on the wow. bus. But I did everyone's makeup and I just remember loving making them feel good about themselves. You know, after I did their makeup and I would show them in the mirror and they'd be like, oh. You know, I love that feeling. So you're a creative person. From, yeah. From the go- I'm not a business go. person, but luckily my wingman here is. <laughs> yes. But so I then decided I wanted to pursue this, being a makeup artist. So I moved to LA and met a clothing stylist for Spike Jones. And I started working with him on all of his projects, commercials and videos. And then I did bring John Malkovich with him. And then I wanted to move to New York. So you got into movies and... And then I wanted to move to New York to try fashion. So was it always part of the plan that you want to ultimately have your own line? Yeah. So what year did you actually kick this thing off? So we kicked it off in 2014, but we didn't launch in the market until 2018. Yeah, it takes a long time in the cosmetics industry and especially the way we do things with our... Very extensive, rigid blacklist. Oh, explain that to me. Rigid blacklist. What well, do you mean? so we we don't allow a lot, a lot of ingredients within our formulas, so that creates you know a whole other layer of complexity and added time. The entire you know supply chain is overseen, so we don't accept ingredients that don't have the highest 
RSPO certificate, which is certification that's recognized in terms of is it ethical? Is it, you know, are children sourcing something? So we would never, we never agree to anything that doesn't have the highest compliancy. Well, I guess it's all relative to one's own experience, but certainly with the journey of like doing it that really sort of shapes the narrative and helps you understand the reason for being for any brand. And I think sort of sitting Process. there with Gucci and saying, you know, what this brand needs to represent you, your career, your credibility, your philosophy, mm -hmm. your taste, you know, what is that? For me, it was always going to be, I wanted to focus on the ingredients and how can we make them as beneficial and more for you as we possibly can. And it's been a really challenging experience, especially when we started, when the chemists were like, I mean, when we tried to do a liquid foundation to begin with, it was impossible. And they were... Impossible, meaning the ingredients needed to actually... The ingredients, you couldn't create the textures that I wanted because I want the performance. I want the inno innovation. Yeah, you couldn't. And and so it's really a, a moment for everyone to rethink how they do things, re-educate -edu themselves. And the formulators are really familiar with how the ingredients that they've been using for years work. And... You know, now there are more ingredients available, but there's other problems present themselves. It's kind of how, how are they sourced? There's always some like twist. So it's really So if you like tough. rewind again to the moment where Gucci kind of said, you know, she wanted her brand to be this marriage of luxury and natural. The serendipity of it is that you fast forward to where we are today and it just so happens that the whole industry and the world has sort of moved in that direction. So now you actually flip it on its head and say, well, the big guys can't really... So they're pivot. chasing you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? All right, so this morning we've got Casper Copetti, who is one of the founders of On Running. Casper, thank you for making yourself available to be on the Nordy Pod. Thanks for having me, Pete. I can think of few things in the world that I'm familiar with that is more challenging and competitive than getting into the athletic footwear industry, which is largely dominated by the giant Nike and Adidas. Yeah, luckily, we were very naive. I mean, <laughs> we hadn't been in the industry before. Literally, how this started was that my co-founder, Olivia, he was a professional triathlete. He was actually on the Nike team at the oh. time, and he got injured. And, and Nike didn't have, at the time, a product that helped him overcome his, his pain issues. So he started working with a Swiss engineer. And what they came up with was a um, revolutionary way of doing cushioning or absorbing impact. So you guys were essentially, you didn't enter into it with the grand business scheme. It was more like you were solving your own problem. You were just trying to take care of an issue about yourselves. Yeah, yeah, and that it's still, it's still the same motivation today. I mean, both my co-founder, Olivia, and myself, we're very emotional uh, people in terms of that. Uh, we, we try to stay positive, and it's all about managing energy and, and exercise, uh, running, movement in general are great tools to do that. And, and so... Yeah, a lot of our motivation comes from how can we capture these emotions that we have when doing sports and turning them into products. There, there are many different you know ways of of running and exercising, and sometimes I just need to clear my my mind. You know, I'm, I have a pretty high paced life. I have two small children. I'm the chairman of a you know multinational stock listed company. So sometimes my my run during lunch is just to get away from it all. At other times, I'm feeling like, uh, you know, I want to break records. 
And how do you capture all these emotions and turn them into products and, and make, make things out of them that others can relate to? That's really where, where the inspiration comes from. So Ben, you know, why fragrance? How, how did that come to be? I mean, so you're pursuing design, creativity, what have you, and it manifests itself in fragrances, which yeah, no, seems unusual too. It, it was, and it, and it is, I think. I met a perfumer by chance at a social event, and we had a very interesting discussion about smell and how, for me, how I connected smell to memory. And this kind of thought stayed with me, and I in, eventually contacted this perfumer and asked him to help me with a creative project, which was simply translating uh, specific memories into smells. And I knew nothing about making fragrance. So working with the perfumer, I had to develop the dialogue and the verbiage to to get the perfumer to, to bring the fragrance in the direction I wanted. That must have been hard. You have to articulate what you meant. I mean, you smell it like, and you're trying to articulate. For sure, without knowing. And I think I use very unique tools like music and poetry and objects. And it was very much about getting him or her at the time to, f- to feel what I was feeling. Talk a little bit about whether it's in your own stores or through you know, wholesale channels, places like Nordstrom, how you get the messaging across so it's more than here's the juice, here's the packaging, that there's something behind it that compels people to want to know more and make it their own thing. We talk a lot about something that I defined as a collective memory. An example of that is one of the first fragrances I created was the smell of my father you know, who left when I was about six. It's a very distinct smell, obviously tied to my father, but it taps into this idea of a collective memory because I felt that most people could relate a father or a father figure to a smell. So it allowed me to tell a story that was very personal, but at the same time, get people to think about what these smells could mean to them. I did that with another smell that was linked to the place in India where my mother was born and raised, a place I visited many times as a child. And even though this was a very specific place in India, in my memories, I felt like most people could connect the idea of India to a smell. So again, this very personal story tapped into this collective memory. Good morning, everybody. So I was at some friend's house this weekend. They said, oh, what are you doing next week? Well, I'm going to New York. What are you doing? I'm giving a talk to like at the beauty summit. Like my friends, oh, okay. Like about what? Well, I'm talking to this woman who's kind of like the leader in eyebrows. And <laughs> so I got a laugh from my friends that this is what I'm doing because what could I possibly know about any of this? And that's true. I don't know a ton. But the good news is here today, we got Anastasia here who's going to tell us about really what's been a remarkable run for you and all all the success you've had. So first of all, thank you for being here and being part of this. Thank you so much for inviting me. You've been in business now for 25 years, is that right? Yes. And we're celebrating 25, 25th anniversary. Yes. So so here we are. Amazing, amazing. But I think what might be interesting to everybody is really, it's an entrepreneur's story. I mean, you, you came in and you created something and then you partnered with us to amplify that and and make that work. So was that something that was part of your plan? Like, I want to see how I can get into a department store? No, it wasn't my plan. I mean, I believed in in my craft. I wanted to become the best in what I did. I created products because my client 
couldn't you know, achieve that perfect eyebrow uh, shape and arch if I didn't have some products. Uh, I thought I would sell it in the store, in my own store, but uh, Dale and your people from Nordstrom, they had the vision, they thought this is an incredible addition to our um, beauty uh, offering to our customers, and uh, they came, and of course we made the deal, and was an incredible journey for me, because you, they believed in, in my craft and, and everything I've done, and after that, we opened the brow studios, and in this was in two. 2000. And then, of course, in 2007, we launched in Sephora and then uh, Ulta as well, Macy's, Dealers. I mean. Why'd you do that? You're killing me. <laughs> so I'm, I'm interested if you could play back to me what it was like working with the Nordstrom team, since there really wasn't a blueprint for this. I mean, it's almost like we had to create this yes. on the fly, right? Yeah, it was very interesting because Dale and um, your team came, and, and I had a meeting in in. Um, in your office, and they couldn't understand why I, I really want to have a brow studio, because in, in 2000, really, people didn't understand how to use the eyebrow products. And I think, to my um, uh, knowledge, working with so many celebrities. At that time, in 2000, I was working with so many, Sharon Stone, Jennifer Lopez, um, uh, Heidi Klum, all the super So how models. did you get connected to all these celebrities? Was that just a word of mouth thing that yes, was happening? Yes, it was a word of mouth, exactly, word of mouth, and beauty editors that supported me and they believe in, in this new uh, transformation because eyebrow is such an important feature on our face that it really brings balance and proportion. This is science combined with beauty and everybody I mean once you see an, somebody that gets their eyebrow properly done you see the difference and, and I will tell you a funny story I don't know if Debbie still remembers uh, you opened the Nordstrom Michigan Avenue and I did um, Oprah Winfrey show at her Harper production um, office and I told her I'm here to do the opening to be at the opening of Nordstrom Michigan Avenue and she said oh my god I love Mich uh, Nordstrom's please say hello that, that's yes. good so not only that I am there doing eyebrows I mean eyebrows after eyebrows I work so long hours and somebody comes from behind and gives me a hug and I'm thinking I'm so tired I can't take this out. So I look up and it was Oprah Winfrey. She came to the opening to support me and support wow. Nordstrom opening. Do you remember, Debbie? Yes, it was amazing. It was, so that is the power of the eyebrow. Women believe in men. It's true. That's the power of the eyebrow. Okay, I'd be remiss not to mention the other quite apparent and intentional pattern that could be seen throughout the NordiPod. A large portion of this show is consisted of some really interesting and successful people who really don't have anything to do with the fashion or retail business. But they all have one thing in common. They've all called Seattle their home at one point or another. People like former NFL wide receiver Doug Baldwin, former NBA All-Star Bob Love, Grammy award-winning hip-hop artist Macklemore, or star of TV and film Joel McHale. Hey, so Joel, I know you obviously from being from Mercer Island and you're on TV a lot, but I mean, the fact that you're an author and an actor and a comedian and a game show host and a dad and all this stuff, I just, you gotta be like, seriously, like the busiest guy in Hollywood. Yeah, I don't have time for this. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it wasn't easy to schedule. I know you're busy. Well, I uh, it's kind of the pace I I enjoy it. So, and but I yeah I I like being busy. My family loves it. And if I get up on the surfboard and hit that wave, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna jump off it anytime soon. If if it keeps going until you know I get dashed on the rocks and my head gets opened up. But uh, you just keep working until you drop dead. So do you remember have a, having a feeling of? This is happening and I'm now in. I'm still waiting for it. I don't know. You've done pretty well. I Let's see. No, I, I I still have the, because the feeling of an, like when you're an actor who doesn't make any money and is out of work, you know, it's like, what am I going to do next? How am I going to get my next job? Even when I began making like Pete Nordstrom money, <laughs> what am I, I was like, I'm always, I was like, this is probably my last job, which is uh, not a healthy way to live. Is it motivating or is it depressing when it's that way? Both. Uh, it's wonderful, exhilarating, depressing, and motivating all at the same time. No, I, there have been a few times when I was like, oh, you're doing okay. Like when I did the White House Correspondence Dinner, and, you know, Obama was like, good job. And I was like, thanks, man. And then he was like, you should come by the house sometime. I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and uh, I remember thinking, oh, this is different. And then like Robert De Niro hired me to do jokes at a few things that he was being honored at. And I was like, oh, I didn't expect all that. I was like, oh, I'll never. I was at a party in in Toronto where freaking Elvis Costello walked up and said, my wife's a fan. <laughs> wow. And I was like, uh, I don't know how ever this ever happened. That Those were those little peaks. But I spend most of my time in a state of slight anxiety getting ready for the next thing all right so it's really a privilege for me to be able to talk to ben Haggerty today you may know him better as macklemore ben thanks so much for doing this this morning b thank you for having me so if you're comfortable talking about this i'd like to talk a little bit about the whole addiction and recovery part of your life absolutely i mean this has been part of your life for a while and, and before you were famous and everything. And what happens when then all of a sudden it's money and it's attention and it's the pressure and the stress and all that. And you're a person that's living through the day-to-day -day struggles of addiction recovery. What, what was that like for you? Shortly after everything really went crazy, I relapsed and went back into active addiction. And yeah, you know, it was a time of escaping. It was a time of like of hiding, of not knowing what how to maneuver through, like walking through an airport and seeing your picture on the cover of a Rolling Stone, having people just constantly bombard you, not being able to eat a meal, like getting written up about getting criticized, like all of these things that now are part of my life and happened really quickly. And I didn't know how to to sit with them. Also a, a massive part of it was I stopped working the program because I was so busy. So I stopped doing my 12 step work. I stopped going to meetings. And when that happens in conjunction with like getting thrown a bunch of like haymakers from life, like I got hit and yeah, it was, it was a dark time. Cause on one end it's like a celebration and crazy things are happening on another end. Like I'm, I'm hiding. Was there ever a time it's like, man, this is slipping away. I could lose all this. I mean, you know, you got this great wife, family, you got this huge career and, you know, a lot of people that are depending on you and, you know, a whole organization and team of people. Was it ever like in danger, like of going away? Absolutely. I mean, if I die, this goes away. 
And then down the line, but let's start there. Like this disease leads to jails, institutions, and death. I'm not promised another relapse. So it's very serious. But the thing is, the disease doesn't care about any of that. You know, the disease is in my head, like, you know, not thinking about all the people we employ or thinking about the music and how it affects people. It's like the disease is just completely self-centered on I want to escape and any means to do that. So the recovery part of it, was it just going back to what you knew, whether it was the 12-step program or what kind of got you then back on the track and able to deal with that? For me, it's always been, yes, the 12-step program, you know, going to meetings, being around others, getting right back in the middle of it, being of service and, um, and doing the work. And that has always quelled me wanting to go out and change the way that I feel. It's always worked. What what doesn't work is when I forget and I start, you know, doing what I want to do. And um, it continues to amaze me the power of community, the power of sharing our truth in a group, the power of showing up for others and telling our story service. It's just it's phenomenal. And I'm grateful to be a part of it. You know, when I was telling, actually, I was talking to my brother and cousin and different people, oh, Doug Baldwin's coming. They go, you mean angry Doug Baldwin? <laughs> At this stage of your life, is this become kind of part of who you are and your brand? Is that you've got this determination because you're kind of angry? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say it was intentional by any means. It was just me being me, right? Like I was thrust into an environment where I was the smallest. Most, most of the times, one of the smallest guys on the team wasn't the fastest, wasn't the strongest, right? So I had to figure out how do I make a statement that I belong here? And, you know, for lack of a better phrase, a better term, you got to survive. And the way that I survived was I'm going to run through this wall. If you're in my way, so be it. You know, and I, and I yeah, I came across as aggressive, right? And that, you know, that's a lot of that is, you know, there's there's a whole conversation about psychology around why the demographic of folks who play football is the demographic of folks who play football, right? A lot of these guys in the NFL who play this violent sport, and I don't call it a contact sport because ballroom dancing is a contact sport, right? Football is a violent collision sport. And you have to be a little bit crazy, to be in that sport and to thrive and to, and to do well at it, right at the levels that we played at. And that comes from experiences, childhood experiences that thrust you into that mindset, into that, that realm. And you know, this, is, this is not just a, a hobby. This is not just a like, oh, I enjoy playing football. No, this is a way out of my situation, my environment, right? My cycle. The translation is like, somebody's trying to prevent me from putting food on the table. So they gotta go. I mean, again, this is a much broader conversation, but oh, we're having the broad conversation right now. I know. I feel it. Um, it. It's a safety thing. Right. When when I was a child, if I didn't if I didn't feel that my worth and my value was being accepted or being acknowledged, it felt like an unsafe place. And so there was no comfort in reaching some type of pinnacle. It was just like, okay, I have to continue to prove my worth and my value because at any point it could deteriorate and then I'm not safe again.
Hey, look, it's really a great pleasure for me today on the Nordy Pod to have Bob Love as our guest. And I remember you, Bob, <laughs> very clearly as a guy on the Chicago Bulls who was totally given my hometown team, the Seattle Supersonics, the business. You were a hell of a player in your day. So, Bob, welcome to the All right, show. Pete, thank you. To start out, can you talk a little bit about your time with the Chicago Bulls? Well, I played for the, uh, the Chicago Bulls for nine years. I, I, I led the Bulls and scored for seven straight years, and uh, I still have records that no one's broken. Even with the three-point shot, none of those guys have uh, broken my records. All the money that these guys are making, <laughs> I'm amazed, I'm amazed, I'm amazed. These guys are hitting the back of the rim, the the, uh, the side <laughs> of the rim, they're missing the whole rim, whole rim, and me and my wife, we sit there, we just laugh about it. <laughs> so, so, Bob, then I want to fast forward to, um, I'll just give you my experience. So, I remember you're on the team, you know, you were really successful basketball player, well-known. But then at the end of your career, you ended up playing your last season in Seattle. Oh, uh, yes, I did. And then I remember, this is maybe a couple years later, I think I was having lunch or something with my dad, you know, Mr. Bruce, who you remember, and John Nordstrom and Jim. And there you were working in the cafe at downtown Nordstrom. So how did it come to be when your professional career was over and you're here in Seattle that you started working at Nordstrom? Well, my last year in the league, Pete, I was in a strange part part of the country. I was I was up in Seattle, and and uh, nobody knew me. I I went to every company around there. I went to Boeing. I, I went to a lot of different stores and companies, and and I no one would hire me because of my speech problem. But I I, I went to I went to Nordstrom. And, and at Nordstrom, all, all you guys knew me, John, Blake, Bruce, and you, of course. And, and you actually said, Bob, uh, the only job that we got is busting tables and washing dishes. I said, I'll take it. And I was being nice to everyone that came into the uh, the restaurant, and a lot of people would laugh would would uh, would laugh at me. Next, man, uh, man, you used to be a great player, man. But look at you now, watching dishes and busting tables. I say, yeah, but I got a job. I got a job, and I'm gonna, and I and I'm gonna do the best job that I can do. I, I, I said, John Nordstrom and Bruce, other uh, uh, other uh, gave me an opportunity, and I wasn't gonna blow that opportunity. John and Bruce said, "Bob, we don't care, care, man, about your speech problem. Uh, we, we're gonna, we're gonna send you to speech therapy, and and uh, you guys are the only are, are the only people who really cared enough about me to uh, to do that, man. And I went to I, I went to therapy, and it really, really helped me. And I'll always, I will always remember that. Uh, John Nordstrom called me into his office. He said, Bob." I just had a talk with with the Chicago Bulls, and they want you. Uh, they want you to come back to to Chicago as a director of community affairs. I said, "Wow, man! Well, thank thank you, John, very very much." He said, "Bob, uh, one day, one day, you're going to get a chance uh, to come back to Seattle, and uh, you're going to get a chance to tell your story to all of the employees all across the country, man." And that's exactly what I'm what I'm doing now.
All right, so to finish up our year in review, apropos of Nordstrom's love for our hometown of Seattle, I'd like to take a little time to highlight some of the ways in which we try to make meaningful impact on our community. And furthermore, our concerted efforts to support communities wherever we exist across the United States. I am super happy to have Dr. Jeff Sparing, the CEO of Seattle Children's Hospital on today. Jeff, thanks for being here. Yeah, no, thanks for being here. So when you get to Seattle, and it's, you know, it seems like a big step for you, you're now one of the major places really in the country, and that, that's all going to be great. At what point did your experience there really give you the full appreciation of what Seattle Children's Hospital is all about? Because obviously you knew about it by reputation and, and statistics that you could read on paper. Yeah, no, and I mean, there's actually one quick summary story to, to this, because to your point, you know, you know the reputation, you know the team, you know those outcomes. I flew here to do my interview. Um, it was a you know candidate interview of CEO, flew into SeaTac, got in the taxi and told the taxi driver where I was going. And, he's, and I said, and, you know, I need to go to Seattle Children's. He immediately starts telling me the story about how Seattle Children saved his son's life, right? And it's like when you, you must get you, that a lot, like at dinner parties, when you introduce yourself, like tell me what you do. Almost every day there there is another story, and again, the, I mean, it has nothing to do with me, right? It's it's about this incredible team and this amazing organization, but it speaks to exactly what you said. Like, how do you know when you get here? Like, is this the place that I really thought it was? And I just I remember that moment, just as like wow, like I literally have met my first person in Seattle, and their first story is about this place that I'm going you know, to be able to hopefully work for someday and about how it saved, you know, his son's life. And it's just kind of kept going from that. You, I got there and, and met the team and I have never met a team who is so dedicated to this mission, you know, to changing kids' lives and doing that. And so for me, I was, I was hooked from there. Um, and thankfully was just fortunate enough that I got the job. I can only imagine then there's that huge community side of it where you're trying to raise money and stuff. Cause as I know intimately here, yeah. um, people can't begin to pay for all the care that's needed. And so you you really have a, a serious uh, dependence on the community being bought into this and, and being supportive of it. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, we couldn't do what we do without community support and philanthropy. It is what founded us in 1907 and what continues to you know sustain us and help us continue to grow so that we can care for more kids and, and more families. You know, we do almost $250 million a year of uncompensated care that, you know, again, without the support of the community and what you know you do through the smooch guild and, and the events and others that all come together to do that that's what allows us to to change these kids lives and make such a difference uh, after our son had that experience at seattle children's hospital and he, and he still has follow-ups and he's there for you know other issues but um once we kind of got out of that critical phase and we're just we're so grateful we said well we feel like we should do something to help express our gratitude and be supportive of this great community asset. So what we decided to do was because we, we were there, spent so much time there, you could see all these people from all over that clearly couldn't afford the kind of care they were getting. I mean, it's expensive. It is expensive. And, you know, we're fortunate that that wasn't our challenge, but you could see it play out there with all these other families. And it was so impressive to us, just the level of care everyone got regardless of means. And any kid that came in that needed the help, they got it. And it was so impressive to us as let's create some kind of fundraising event that supports uncompensated care. And so your point, $250 million a year goes yeah. to uncompensated care. And we've had a really successful guild and, and raising money. And it's I think we're up about $30 million now after right. 11 years of doing this. And that's 
amazing and everything, but it's just a drop in the bucket compared to annually what you need to be able to provide that service. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, but I, that to me, the really important piece of this is it really takes everyone in the community coming together to be able to do that in, in all of their own ways. I mean, that's what allows us you know, to raise the money that we do through philanthropy to be able to support the programs and the services to be able to do that. I mean, it, it, it's extraordinary. And back to one of the things that you know you asked earlier, I've never seen a community that supports its children's hospitals and kids like this community in Seattle does. And so one of the things that we're incredibly fortunate, it allows us to do this work because so many people come together, 400 different guilds that come together to, to support in their own way, you know, donors that, that make sure that we're able to keep that founding promise from 1907, that we were gonna be here for every kid that needed us, regardless of whether the family could pay or not. So, Amy, I think maybe the best way to start here is if you can talk a little bit about Shoes That Fit and what your mission is. Yeah, so Shoes That Fit is um, really a simple concept. We provide brand new athletic shoes to kids in low-income communities at their schools across the country. We're in all 50 states now, um, thanks to our relationship with Nordstrom that really helped launch us. Um, but we believe, I, I always say our secret sauce is we're really not about shoes, we're about the kids. And we want them to have something that most schools can't provide. It's, it's an often overlooked need. Shoes are so basic to a kid's ability to play in PE, um, to how they feel about themselves, to feeling like they fit in. I mean, shoes are just, a, as Nordstrom knows, shoes are just a really big deal to kids. So we want them to have brand new name brand athletic shoes because we really believe these kids are our future and we want to give them something that is just really necessary for them. You know what I think is really cool about I mean, there's existential need, but what you're tapping into in terms of giving kids a, a source of confidence or pride yeah. or whatever that comes from the fact that they're getting brand new shoes yep. and they're they're getting cool shoes i mean they're from the best brands in the world they're getting these shoes so it's not just like oh i guess i'm getting some hand-me-down or some old rejects of nope. shoes i mean the fact that there's something brand new happening there is really amazing. We've had kids who wouldn't open their boxes. They just hold the box because they've never had a new box of anything before. I mean, it's really, you will laugh so hard at these events. You might cry a little. I mean, it's, it can be kind of emotional, but you're right. It's, it's giving them the best and telling them that we believe you deserve the best. Yeah. I think that's a really powerful statement. I love it. And we have Heather Conley here, who's the VP of Partnerships at Operation Warm. Tell me about how it came to be that you guys started work with Nordstrom here in 2018 and, and what that partnership looks like. So initially when Nordstrom reached out, it was a program specifically supporting the New York City community. And in that first year, we did one volunteer event together where uh, Nordstrom employees helped distribute coats to an entire school in New York City. And since then, the impact of our, our partnership has grown significantly. You mentioned how that we started in New York, but I know for this year, yeah, we have five different delivery events. So we've got Atlanta, Chicago, Denver, New York, and Seattle. And again, and all right. for elementary school children. Is that right? That's exactly right. And those are the volunteer opportunities where Nordstrom employees will be at the school helping us 
give the kids, letting them pick out their coat, having their name written in the coat. And I'll tell you, the Nordstrom events are some of my favorite because the events team really brings it. We They add a DJ to the event. Uh, they bring some extra things for the kids, hats and gloves. And so it's, it is just a festive celebration. And the kids, like the idea of getting ready, you know, having them pick out their Operation Warm Coat and their goodies and then being able to put it in a shopping bag just really like makes the event even that more special for them. So it looks like the uh, kindergartners are coming in now and they're walking up to the tables here. Hi there! Any color you want. Alright, good choice. Today we're going to gift about 420 coats to every kid in the school today, right in time for the winter. And I know, because I've had the honor of coming to many Operation Warm events, I know the impact that it not only has to the children and the teachers, but the parents. I'm a parent. I have three young kids. It, it gives me chills. It is, it's hard for me to be able to provide my kids with what they need to come to school. And to be able to know you're sending your child to school and then they get to go outside and play with all their friends and they get to be part of the community and they're with their peers. They don't have to stay in because they don't have the warmth to go outside and play. So it is so much more than just a coat. We've had this on our class calendar for a few weeks so they know that it's coming up, that today we get free coats. Um, it's been really, really cold lately and so they're really excited about getting free coats. When they came in from recess today, they showed me how cold their hands were. Do you have a lot of kids in your classes that don't have coats? Yes. Uh, a lot of my students don't have a coat that fits, don't have a coat that's warm enough, or gloves or things like that. So um, earlier in the year, Nordstrom came and supplied the students with shoes, and that was a big helper for having shoes that fit, that can keep their feet dry in the winter. And now this will really help prepare them for the winter because um, they walk to school in the morning, and this is just a big impact on their lives. So they're super excited. Did you get a coat? Yeah. What color? did you get? Pink. Did you get a coat too? Yes, I got a rosy pink color. Okay. How about you? Did you get a coat? Yeah, I got blue and black. Were they giving some gloves away in there too? Yeah, I got dark blue gloves. Nice. Have you had a coat before? Yeah. Have you had a new coat before? No. No. How's that feel to have a new coat? Good. Good. Do you think you'll wear this coat or do you think you're going to wear your old coat? I'm going to wear this coat every day. Do you love your coat? Yeah, I love it. I very much love it. You it's like very it? cold outside today and I have soccer practice and this helps. This is the best day ever. Woo! Is this really your best day ever? Yeah, better than Christmas. This is better than Christmas. Wow. Well, that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. And what a great way to kick off the new year. I hope your resolutions are reasonably aspirational and realistically attainable. As for us, we resolve to continue doing this podcast so long as you keep listening. So if you love the show and want to make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. 
For more information about the show, head to Nordstrom.com slash Podcast or follow us on our Instagram page at the Nordipod to stay up to date on new episodes, announcements, and more. We'd also really like to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. So if you have a story about how you've received great service or even bad service, send us an email to Nordipodcast at Nordstrom.com. You can even give us a call and leave a voicemail. And you may just get a chance to talk to me personally on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy. Drop us a line and be part of the NordyPod. And make sure to tune in next time when I sit down with innovative retail mall developer and operator, Rick Caruso. You come onto our properties, we want it to feel like an oasis. What you hear, what you smell, what you see, what you touch, everything has to transport you to a better place in time, has to drop your blood pressure, and has to make you happy. If I can get somebody in that state of mind, they're going to stay longer. And the longer you stay, the more money you're going to spend. Rick was nice enough to sit down with me and be interviewed at the ICSC conference recently. I think you're really going to enjoy his insights about the retail business. So join us next time on The Nordy Pod. Hey folks, happy new year to everyone. Look, I'd be remiss if I did not take this opportunity to thank some of the folks that are responsible for making this podcast happen. They do an awesome job. Nathan Shields, Kent Worthington, Ramon Barajas, Grace Stearns, and Sharon Ovens. There are others that are involved too, but in particular, these folks work hard behind the scenes to make this happen. They do an awesome job. We're super grateful that you're listening to the podcast and that you're enjoying it. Thanks so much for being on this journey with us and happy new year to everyone.